Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, on this week's New Statesman podcast, Helen is still on holiday somehow. Brexit is still unresolved, so the politics desk joins me to discuss all of that. Plus, lots of you have asked us what it is that parliamentary staffers actually do, so we brought a real live one into the office to talk to us about it. Don't worry, we did let them go afterwards. Helen is once again away, so I am joined by the NS Politics Desk to talk about another action-packed week or action-free week. We scarcely get anything else now. Yeah. So, Patrick, if you could, just for the benefit of our listeners, the ones who are happily living under a rock, just update what has happened at the time of recording. God, I mean, when did we when did we last record? All the days seep into one now. Since you last tuned in, the Prime Minister has through a combination of objective reality and the will of the commons, been forced to seek and make clear her intention to seek an Article 50 extension. A reaction from Tory Brexiteers to the suggestion that it might be a long one has bounced her into seeking an extension up to the 30th of June, that she will uh, petition the European Council for in Brussels tomorrow, that's Thursday the 21st of March. But, you know, Juncker says there's a hard deadline of the 23rd of May. 30th of June is a significant date because it's the day before the new European Parliament is sworn in. And, you know, in the hours before this, Emmanuel Macron has said he is willing to, uh, or it's been reported that Emmanuel Macron has said he will reject any Article 50 extension. Now, that is just a bit of sabre-rattling before the summit, no doubt, but it speaks to you know the fact that this isn't a foregone conclusion just because may or the commons want something doesn't necessarily mean they'll get it it's not i think as you said this morning it's not a negotiation it's a request yeah. the 27 hold all the cards and also we know the prime minister is going to do something outside downing street tonight whether it speaks to her thing she sort of said at pmq today which is if the extension is beyond the 30th of june she can't she won't stay prime minister or whether it's her classic Hi, it's me, Theresa. I hear you like that tune. I, the only tune I know. Well, I'm here to play it again. I mean, I do kind of assume it will be her kind of like you know, country needs to come together. Or, or you know, the e- I've shown flexibility. The EU need to be flexible. Mostly, yeah, one never goes bust betting on May, saying the same thing over and over again. 
regardless of how connected that is to any real scenarios. But I kind of thought this week, seeing as although last week we obviously went slightly late in order to update people on some of the votes, seeing as we are in this weird liminal state where we don't know what's going to happen, it's very hard to work out even what point we should stop and update uh, NS podcast listeners. I thought it would be useful to talk about some of the potential resolutions. We don't have to do them in order of plausibility. We can find some other fun order. But one of the things that could happen if there is an extension is it would give some time for a fresh election, which, I mean, feels fairly unlikely to me as an outcome. (sighs) Theresa May has always said she doesn't want an election. At least she did say that from Clinton. Well, indeed, but yeah, and and her pitch to the 1922 committee was, when she was facing a confidence vote, she opened with, I'm not going to be calling it an app election. Now, the subtext was, okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean I won't blunder into a situation where it is the only... You know, solution to the on pass I might find myself in at some point in the new year, and have you know it feels unlikely, but it's not out of the question. We know that an extension, there is still a school of thought in Brussels and in the capitals that actually you know there needs to be. May doesn't have a clear strategy, and she needs to have one uh, in order to you know have an extension. Might she think, well, you know, in the name of God, go as Cromwell said. And another, admittedly, very unlikely scenario is another no-confidence vote, in which this time, you know, there's been a few right-wing Tory MPs saying, if this time we might vote against Theresa May and bring her down if she doesn't listen to us on Brexit and leave on the 29th of March. Yeah. So that's always something that could... And because she does have the padding of, you know, the 11 TIG MPs, I think, yeah, it feels unlikely. But again, I think not impossible, although... Elaine, you have very helpfully been going through the worldviews of the parliamentary candidates in these places. Let's imagine for a moment that uh, there, there is an election and we wake up and the Conservatives have gained 10, 15 seats. Mm-hmm. What are those people like? So I've, I've been speaking to quite a few of them this past week. The, the kind of most important message that I've gleaned from that, actually, is that it would definitely make it much likelier for Theresa May to pass a deal. Maybe that's an obvious point, but basically everybody who's standing for the Conservative Party is a committed Brexiteer now. Even if they're standing in some of the most remainery seats in the country, they say, "We think, uh, you know, I think that voters, even those who voted for Remain now, want us to get on with Brexit and deliver it for the people. So if we do get more Conservative MPs, wherever they are, they're going to be Brexiteers. And even those, I mean... Pretty much everybody I've spoken to said they would have voted against Theresa May's deal the first time round, but the second time round they would have voted for it. And even the ones that are kind of kind of closer to Jacob Rees-Mogg in their politics, they say that they would vote for it the third time. They would hold their nose and kind of get it through. So I think that's definitely something that we would see happen if we had a, a conservative majority in the next election. So that's interesting because my underlying assumption had always been that an election almost certainly made the parliamentary stick worse. Because you obviously have this problem that within the governing party, you have a series of competing ways out that can't be reconciled with one another. On the opposition parties, you have a large group of MPs who want a second referendum but aren't large enough to get one. You have a large group of MPs who want a softer Brexit but almost certainly aren't large enough to get one. And then increasing the number of Labour MPs basically broadly increases the number of people in both those groups. So unless you have a Labour majority that's quite large, it's not large enough to actually resolve the issue. And my assumption had been that the problem is is that these new Conservative MPs will be even more Brexity than the ones they have, and will therefore be more no dealy. But by the sounds of it, actually, they are Brexity, but not sort of like over mm. the cliff, over the cliff. Pretty much everybody, you know, unlike Labour MPs, they're not completely terrified by the prospect of no deal. So even the 
kind of moderate Tories say, well, you know, I would, I really wouldn't like the deal, but if that's what it comes to, that's what it comes to. So they wouldn't do anything to stop it. But yeah, everybody who I've spoken to would have voted for the deal. So I think that's an interesting insight into what it might look like if we have another election. Yeah, obviously you've already written up the piece about the Labour, the sort of Labour intake, but what, where are they at? So they're more split on Brexit in that they they broadly reflect their, the views of their constituencies. So people who are in heavily Remain voting constituencies are pro-second referendum, while people who are trying to gain leave voting constituencies are much more nervous about that prospect and they say that when they're knocking on doors they keep hearing over and over that people won't vote ever again if we have a second referendum that the Labour Party's prospects will be damaged etc so they they're much more in favour of a customs union sort of Brexit style deal right okie dokie so hmm, that's interesting you learn something new every day um so in terms of the sort of what are the other ways out assuming an election doesn't happen which I think still feels quite likely to me that it won't happen this side of Brexit, partly because, I mean, can you imagine what the party... I mean, particularly, like, because the government has done nothing but Brexit for the past two years, mm. what would they campaign on? I mean, it would literally be, like, you know, a lot of royal commissions set up. Yeah, it's sort of, let us start the job. Let yeah. her let her start the job. You know, they had yeah. those um, posters of Churchill after, yeah. in the 45 election. Yeah. Let him finish the job. Let her start the job. Uh, you can deal with the other electoral event that could happen in a sentence, can't you? There could be a second referendum, but there won't be. It's one of those things where it's really difficult to see where the majority comes from. I don't think that they have done anywhere near enough work to build or even increase the number of MPs who would back it. And also, the kind of other thing people, I think, are not sufficiently alive to is if, if there, it is impossible to see how we are going to hold European elections, right? How would that pass through the House of Commons, right? A Conservative government would have to bring forward legislation to pass it. And then MPs who are worried about being seen to block Brexit would not only have to allow European elections to take place, they would have to they would actively have to facilitate the holding of European elections. And also, like, you know, this is wielded as a, as a stick by Brussels and indeed May, but the seats have already been reallocated. The 73 UK seats have already been reallocated to other European countries. I mean, unless you're going to undo all of that at the 11th hour... And, you know, every other member of the 27 who's got new seats is going to tweak their own domestic legislation. It just is in nobody's interest. And as we've all written, you know, EU law primarily exists to... This is a bold, sweeping statement. I'm sure people listening will have, you know, academic grounds to disagree with this. But I think it's fair to say that EU law basically serves a political purpose before it serves a... You know, it upholds the political purpose project right yeah so like you can always find a fudge if the politics of the situation necessitates it as they did for the accession states in the noughties for romania and bulgaria and i'm sure you know you could you can send mps or peers to be observer meps or or whatever and i think the thing is right you can you can always find a way forward for people who want to stay in the Mm. club the united kingdom okay maybe british voters do want to stay in the club now the British Parliament does not want to stay in the club, and it is not going to change short of some kind of electoral event where the Lib Dems gain 350 seats, which you know, could, happen, could happen, I suppose. It's theoretically possible. Or TIG. Or TIG, yeah. Wait, no, again, they're not TIG, because I refuse to start Sorry, referring. T-I-G, T-I-G. T-I-G. They will never be lowercase, uppercase T, lowercase I, lowercase G in, in the magazine of Orwell. I don't know, I'll start leaving menacing notes on your desks in Westminster if, uh, if if people start referring to them as 
is, is, is Tig. It's Tig. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the artists currently known as Tig, yeah, okay, if they gained 325 seats, then suddenly that would change the arithmetic. But seeing as there is no plausible path from where we are now on the 20th of March to the 11th of April, by which point you'd have to legislate to hold European elections, to a majority emerging to do that, well, at that point, if you haven't elected MEPs, you can't stay in the project. So we're not going to stay in the project, right? So that's that that can be dispensed with. Mm. What are the other lifeboats? Tweak the political declaration so that it in- explicitly includes a... Somebody tweaks the political declaration. Yeah. Maybe not May. Maybe it is the Commons resolves that it wants to tweak the political declaration so it includes a customs union. Does that get, get you over the line? You have a short technical extension. In the space of the extension, you tweak the political declaration so it is you know, amenable to the Labour Party and enough Conservative MPs? I mean, the question I have is, is there actually a majority for a soft Brexit? Only if all the second referendum supporters go for that, which means they've just decided that the second referendum is not going to happen. When you say all the second referendum supporters, do you mean all the second referendum supporters in the Labour Party? Or are you including, in order to get to 325, do you need the SNP, Plaid Cymru? I think you need the smaller parties. Because I think the thing is, I think I can conceive of a situation where all of the second referendum backers who are in the Labour Party go, we tried, we can't have no deal, the party's official position is X, so the, uh, the political damage of backing some form of Brexit is going to happen to you anyway if you're a Labour second referendum. I can just about see a situation in which all of those MPs vote for it. But... You know, the thing that TIG are doing, right, is they're they're trying to basically do with Remain what the SNP have done with support for Scottish independence, right? And they think if they sit there kind of punching that bruise going, oh, Labour are betraying you, Mm. then they can reconfigure politics on the Remain leave axis. Maybe it will work, maybe it won't, maybe it will work well enough for them to get 15% of the vote. But that's what they're trying to do. Well, they can't ever, I think, put that away. Plaid Cymru and the SNP, who have enjoyed surge in the polls as a result of their uh, explicitly anti-Brexit position, I don't think can do it either. I think maybe if you're Caroline Lucas, you can get away with it, because obviously you are... Can you in, you know, in Brighton Pavilion, in... I'm sure they're the biggest number of EU EU flag berets per capita in the entire country there. But they like her Uh, anyway. She has a big majority, right? But, you know, what's to stop that majority flipping to a n other... I don't want to say tree-hugging, but, you know, woke candidate of the progressive left. Yeah, OK, it's a fair point. I guess my assumption is not so much whether or not she can, but, I mean, I, yeah, I kind of think she would be fine, but mm. I'm probably wrong. But in that case, right, it's, it's, it's hard to work out where the numbers for another, a softer deal comes from, other than the kind of fear of, oh, God, the cliff, the cliff. And increasingly the question I have is, I feel like we've spent ages going... You know, in, in, in our free morning email, in our pieces, basically going, well, look, the legal default is no deal. And basically going, oh, but that won't happen because convoluted. After the Scottish referendum, when the SNP surged in the polls, people would basically look at what that meant for Scottish Labour and go, oh, that seems very catastrophic. Maybe they'll get 12 seats. And obviously they didn't get 12 seats. They got one seat. And I kind of wonder if, are we just like dancing around this idea that it won't be no deal because we've decided no deal is so horrific that something will have to happen to prevent it? You know, the collective sort of micawberism of Westminster, be it MPs, the government or the, the commentariat who just sort of assume something will turn up because it has to and, you know, no deal doesn't happen to a serious democracy. Parliament, even at this late stage, isn't willing to incur the political pain of agreeing on something that would stop it. 
it was reported yesterday, you know, the DUP are waiting for Tory Brexiteers to jump before they jump and Tory Brexiteers are waiting for the DUP to jump. And then there's the assumption among many Labour MPs that May will have to, you know, extend Article 50 herself. Anyway, anyway that's sort of been proven true. But basically everyone is looking to others and saying, well, it's fine because they'll incur the pain first and that means we can just sort of row in behind them and say it's a, a fair accompli. But even now, nobody is willing to make the first move. And so that that would sort of imply that actually the chances of no deal are greater than the, the 10, 20% that people like Charles Grant say there is. On that cheerful note, I guess we will all be back to talk this over very soon. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call No One Else But Me Is Here. You Ask Us. This is a slightly niche one, which is obviously we talk a lot about talking to staffers and aides and parliamentary assistants. What do these people actually do? So to discuss that, we have got a real live parliamentary assistant, Tara O'Reilly, who works for the Tribune Group of Labour MPs, who's also the Young Women's Trust's trailblazer of the year, decade, month, week? Something like that. Something like that. So explain, as if you would, to a very slow child. So actually, I guess, you know, your average political journalist. Explain to me what it is you do day to day. So I'm the coordinator to a group of 90 MPs. Every day is varied. People always ask me, you know, what's what's a normal day? There is not a normal day when you're a staffer. But a lot of the time it's going through the inbox, managing a diary, chasing your politician round to give them notes or to just find out where on earth they are, um, doing research, social media, editing videos. It's a whole bunch of things. You are definitely not a one-trick pony when you work for a politician in Westminster. Yeah, so the, the thing that I've never really understood is why do MPs have so few members of staff? Is it that at some point in the 90s when people liked politicians briefly, like a generous budget was set and now that like inflation just means that gradually they can hire fewer and fewer or, you know, because whenever I go and visit an MP, there's basically one or maybe two people doing what is clearly several people's jobs. Why is that? I mean, people often think that the budget, that MPs get too much money and, you know, expenses and this, that, the other, but I think they get around 160k a year to spend on staff. And actually, that that isn't much. It isn't much. If you're thinking about having an office manager, caseworkers, and especially given that the amount of casework that comes through to an MP's inbox at the moment is just increasing because of things like austerity and... Brexit and then having a researcher and someone else to maybe do constituency stuff or to also help out in parliament there just isn't the resource I think to have 
many staff. And, and then what ends up happening is that you hire, you end up hiring younger people on quite low wages. So they then also don't stick around. So there's a high turnover of people working for MPs because there's no progression. And you kind of end up having people who come into Westminster um, working for an MP and having to learn to do absolutely bloody everything because there just isn't money to hire anyone else to do other things. Yeah, so like how are, you know, how are parliamentary staffers made? I don't mean in a kind of like there's a mummy parliamentary <laughs> staffer and a daddy one who love each other very much kind of way. But like how did you like get, to, yeah, what, when did you wake up and go, do you know what I really want to do to have to chivvy, no offence to any of the people who chivvy like some of the strangest people you will, <laughs> you'll ever meet? I think I fell into it. I worked for the party initially and worked for Sadiq on his mayoral campaign. And then my boss basically met me through that and offered me a job to come and help him out for a few months, which then turned into something per- permanent. But a lot of the time people start off as interns and then apply for a job as a parliamentary assistant and then stick on as a parliamentary assistant. But you do have to be slightly bonkers, I think, to want to work in Westminster and to stick it out because it is a it is a crazy place to work and working for politicians is not like working for anyone else. Why isn't it like working for anyone else? What, what makes them different from, say, you know, working for... Well, the hours are unpredictable, first of all. So you're, you're not doing a normal nine to five ever, which is fun, it's exciting, but sometimes stressful. But it's not just having a boss. It's not like, you know, having a normal office job and, you know, working to someone who you have monthly meetings with and that kind of thing. You're, you're working for a personality as well who has an ego. You end up having this really intense relationship with someone who has a public profile and then you know, is accountable to however many tens of thousands of constituents. And you are basically responsible for you know, keeping them healthy, happy, well-fed, well-prepared and well, well ready for interviews and, and anything else. So Yeah, in terms of preparing them for interviews, one of the things parliamentary staffers always say to me is like, the thing they find most stressful, weirdly, is the moment before someone goes on telly, when there's, there's still this idea that there's something you can do. Mm-hmm. But once they're on... It's, it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's just totally like, well, fine. yeah, like, okay. there's... What... There's nothing more I can do. They're gone. It's it. <laughs> That's it. What to you is the 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 most stressful part of, of being a parliamentary assistant? It depends, because sometimes it is not knowing where they are. And that is extremely stressful because MPs go completely rogue. And I have more conversations with parliamentary staffers who are my friends complaining about, you know, where are our like, MPs? They've just gone missing. But I think it is the unpredictability. It's you can, when you're in Westminster, it's really intense. And if you believe in what you do, which I think most people do, regardless of, you know, who you work for, you do, you are in it for a reason. You absorb a lot of that responsibility. So when you are, you know, when you're prepping your, your MP for something, you invest a lot of your yourself in it. And I think that is the most stressful part. It's relinquishing, knowing that you have to relinquish that control and that actually your politician who you work for is, they are their own human and there's only so much you can do to, to help them. And I think a lot of staffers do struggle with that element of just letting their MP be their, their own MP. And what's the best bit of being a parliamentary assistant? <laughs> you mean other than... The cheap drinks in the bars, <laughs> which are not very cheap. Oh, well, this is, like, this is a weird thing. <laughs> which right? is all, that's what whenever, everyone thinks. But whenever I not. read about the subsidy subsidised drinks, I'm always kind of semi fascinated as to where. Although the Lord's Bar have started doing really good food. Yeah, so the which Lord... that is definitely so one of the slight one of my best is, is yeah. I don't don't want to sound you know harsh, but I don't like this new thing of common staffers being able to come to. For a while, the fact that the food in the Lords was so much better, which makes no sense because. 
there's only one catering team like yeah. it's just like it's, it's they just had like fried this, chicken last night it's like it can't it, it's like it's literally like it's not like oh well the lords have got like a di- the same people as are the MPs they'll eat anything um but it's yeah it's much better but it's the word has got out now so before it used to be that thing where you just turn up immediately get a seat now it's like it's it's lousy it's... with with MPs staffers. I think you all should be banned. <laughs> I literally think that you know that bit where so the weird thing that I guess lots of our listeners won't know is that the floors are a different colour in the Lord side of the yes. building, which is always useful if you get lost. Although it's always slightly weird when you go like, oh, I'm about oh wait no I'm on the wrong on, side on the wrong side of the building. Other than the yeah the not actually that subsidised bars, what is the? I enjoy the buzz. I enjoy being busy. I enjoy kind of being at the centre of everything. Even though at the moment, every time I go home, I've got texts, WhatsApps, calls from friends and family asking me, you know, what on earth is going on with Brexit? And to be honest, I never really know how to answer that. It's that feeling of being at the heart of it and and feeling like you can make a little bit of a difference. I think because you are literally walking in the corridors of power and working for influential people. I mean, Labour MPs. <laughs> Just kidding to any Labour MPs. To the Labour MPs who listen to this, you're hugely influential and I take it back. Uh, I think it's that. And and also it's the friendships you, you end up creating because to survive in a place like Westminster, especially as a staffer, because you are kind of the the unappreciated backbone and magic behind the scenes... To survive that, you do need really, really, really good friends in that bubble, in the Westminster bubble, who understand your job and understand the unique and weird things you have to do sometimes. And and, and that's definitely what get, what gets me through. It's the WhatsApp groups I've got with, you know, other, especially other women, female star, other women staffers. Yeah, I think the friendships and the buzz. On the, the, the women point. We had a, are still having a tide of greater openness about abuses of power and sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. That's had a thus far very limited effect at Westminster, right? Yeah, you know, definitely. Uh, you know, Damien Green, who had to resign because of allegations against him, has now essentially been rehabilitated. Yeah. Easy to imagine that she could bring him back into the cabinet tomorrow. I guess basically, why do you think it is that there hasn't been the kind of full sense of accountability at Westminster than there has elsewhere? I think partly it's because people are distracted with everything going on with Brexit and they are just so overwhelmed that actually most politicians and people in the House are just so busy and (coughs) consumed with Brexit that they just don't have the capacity, which is understandable to some degree. But then I just don't think there's been enough pressure or they just really... You know, when, when the Me Too movement started and, you know, people were coming out with their stories of harassment and abuse in Westminster, there was definitely a sense of hope, especially among, for me and other friends who work for politicians, that, OK, you know what, now this is our moment. Like, you know, we're going to change the culture here. Something's going to be done and there are going to be rules. There's going to be accountability. And since then, I now think most people feel more pessimistic about the mood and about how sexual harassment and abuse is responded to in Westminster because nothing has been done and and I think I just don't think at any point there's been incentive enough for the people who hold the power whether that's the house staff or politicians or you know the leader of the house to actually do anything about it there's just there's just not reason they don't have that <coughs> that reason to do anything but despite that you would recommend it to someone else if you know would you you do it again yeah i would but it's um, definitely not an easy place to be as a woman or as anyone working for a politician in Westminster. But yeah, it's quite a difficult place to work, I think, if you are a woman. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our political correspondent, Patrick Maguire, our Anthony Howard scholar, Eleni Carrere, and parliamentary staffer, Tara Jane O'Reilly. It's recorded by India Bork, produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. If you're listening to this on Thursday, it's my birthday, but because of the national crisis, I am instead in the office. What better birthday gift to me than to subscribe to the New Statesman? You can subscribe by going to www.newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.